On the show this morning, BC Today's Shannon Waters, Global BC's Richard Sussman and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw to discuss all the latest political news. We finish the show by talking the Ontario election in marijuana with former Kamloops MLA Terry Lake. Accountable to you, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Centre on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the line this morning by BC Today's Shannon Waters, Global BC's Richard Zussman and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. Welcome all. Morning, Shane. Uh, by the way, Rob, just as a heads up, if you're planning and driving up, it's going to snow in the coke on Saturday night. Are you have you got over your stress on that one, Rob, by the way? Are you okay? Well, I got one of those little meditation balls, you know. Those <laughs> All right. Uh guys, why don't we just do a quick round the horn here on the Ontario election because it was a uh, big news yesterday, obviously, uh the demise of Kathleen Wynne and her Liberals after fifteen years in power, uh the progressive conservatives and uh the unlikely leader of Doug Ford sweeping to power. Uh Richard, why don't we start with you? You've got some deep roots in Ontario. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I've been chatting with a lot of my friends. I grew up there in Ontario. I've been chatting with lawyers and doctors. And, you know, the sun came up this morning in Ontario. Everybody went to work as normal. Uh, things seem to be pretty normal after, you know, what has been a pretty massive sh political shift in that province. You have to remember, like B.C., the Liberals were in power for 15 years. And it was two different premiers, starting with Dalton McGuinty and then with Kathleen Wynne. And so that party is entrenched in everything that happens uh, in that province, in terms of the bureaucracy, in terms of the political machinery. And so a lot of that is going to take time. Uh, it's going to be a real seismic shift in the way things work in Queen's Park there, which is the legislative building in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think everybody expected that Doug Ford was going to win, but now we're facing that reality. Who's going to be in his cabinet? You know, a lot of those people don't have any experience. The same sort of thing that John Horgan faced in terms of actual cabinet experience. Although there is some serious political clout in Christine Elliott and uh, Rod Phillips and Caroline Mulroney. So it's going to be fascinating. To bring it back home, though, quickly, Shane, yep. uh, basically every premier in Canada, uh, excluding CEI and uh, Nova Scotia or Newfoundland, because they don't tweet very much, uh, did not congratulate Doug Ford. Mm. And the third who did not congratulate him was John Horgan, yep. uh, which I found really fascinating. He sent out two tweets uh, congratulating Andrea Horvath for her strong finish as the leader of the official opposition, uh, but Horgan declined to um, congratulate Ford, which mm -hmm. I think, you know, BC Ontario relations aren't particularly important, but Ontario is the economic driver in this country, and there needs to be some sort of relationship, and I don't think that's a particularly strong start because, you know, don't think that Doug Ford hasn't noticed. Uh, that Horgan is the only real major premier that tweets in this province. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, Shannon, of course, everyone's going to be comparing the, the inevitable Trump comparisons, but uh, Rob Ford obviously has some skeletons in the closet and some uh, pretty serious personal issues. Uh, uh, to see a guy like that kind of uh, rise to power, should that be concerning, or are we just looking at sort of the way things are this day and age? I think there's a lot of people who are going to draw that parallel to Ford as being Trump, obviously, you know, they aren't the same, but there there are some similarities there. I mean, one of the first things that um, Ford is going to be dealing with is the lawsuit that's been launched against him um, by his sister-in-law, the widow of his brother, 
um, Rob Ford, and that was a very colorful read to go over sort of her accusations about, you know, his mismanagement supposedly of the family company and pushing her and her children out of um, their stock shares. I mean, it's it was like I said, a very interesting read. That's something that, you know, Ford has completely denied. He says he doesn't know where the allegations are coming from. He's always tried uh, to take care of his brother's widow, according to him, and he Mm -hmm. says that the allegations will be proved wrong in court, um, but we'll be waiting to see what happens on that front. No kidding. Uh, Rob, you're no stranger to seeing governments or governments in waiting campaign and a long list of promises. We're seeing that now play out with the Oregon government when it comes to delivering uh, the, the, the now, the incoming Ford government in Ontario certainly campaigned on some pretty uh, crazy promises, lowering prices on gas and taxes, and everything's going to be great. They're going to restart the economic engine, all this stuff with zero cost attached. Uh, problems in delivery side, you think? Yeah, well, they better get Buck a beer going because people are going to be <laughs> upset if that doesn't actually happen. But, you know, it was a campaign built upon the idea of fiscal prudence and reducing the deficit and taking your tax dollars seriously. And I, I mean, it was interesting to watch that, that Doug Ford wasn't even able to really identify the efficiencies that he was going to cut in government in order to keep, mm. uh, you know, reducing the deficit. So there's a reckoning period, you know, the, the traditional honeymoon period that exists after any kind of change in government where, you know, John Horgan was able to enjoy this as well, where you get quite a few months where voters say, you know, let's give this person some time. But... The worrying part about Doug Ford is that there's not a lot of of uh, past that he's outlined on how he's going to achieve his goals. So it'll yeah. be it'll be a fascinating few months to watch that transition into power before voters kind of wake up and realize. Uh, what they actually elected. No kidding. Okay, uh, let's talk proportional representation. Uh, I'm getting my butt handed to me on Twitter by Justin McElroy, uh, and it, which underlines to me some of the uh, complexity of this process. Um, uh, they rubber stamped the proportional representation recommendations, so we kind of know what the playing field is. July 1st, obviously, the start of the official campaign. Uh, the no side yesterday, Richard, saying uh, they don't want people to, to vote in the second half of the two-part question here. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's an interesting strategy. Again, we're not voting tomorrow. We're voting in October and November, and there's a lot of time between now and then. And sure, the systems are complex, and we don't know a lot about them now, but there will be a lot of information thrown at us over the next little bit to help us make a decision in terms of what system you want. The theory I was tossing around yesterday is the no side could easily say, not just don't vote on the second question, but vote on the most complex second question. Uh, and so on the first question, vote against PR and then vote for what you believe is the most complex one. And the no side led by Bill Thielman and Susan Anton could choose that. And then that may end up being the system we have and throw the whole system into chaos. <laughs> and then after these two elections, there's another referendum And the voter very clearly in a chaotic system would then go back to first past the post. That may be the way that uh, Thielman and Anton get what they want. It's more effective than not voting at all, because if they don't vote at all, then the PR supporters will get the system they believe works best. Maybe it works, and then maybe people support it and we continue along the path of PR. I know there's a lot of hypotheticals here, but I think it's a little bit silly at this point for the no side to be throwing out scenarios where people 
abstain entirely from the vote, especially considering there is a lot of time between now and when people get their mail-in ballots. Yeah, well, maybe not enough time considering the complexities of some of these systems. Uh, Shannon, we were talking last week about whether the timeline was sufficient, whether people have time to inform themselves. It caught my ear this week when John Horgan basically said, well, they can just Google it. What'd you think of that? <laughs> it made me laugh, especially because he said the Google. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um... I think Richard's right. I think there is time. Um, you know, we do have months. Uh, it's summer where, you know, the legislature's not sitting, so relatively quiet on some other sort of political issues that have been dominating the landscape. Um, I'm really interested to see the campaigns get going and to actually explore kind of the issues around, you know, the complexity of the systems and what they might actually look like rather than what up until now, to me, appears to be mostly the B.C. Liberals talking about the stacked deck and the rigged game. Mm. I want to hear the merits of the systems and, you know, what PR could bring to B.C., and I want to hear the concerns of people who don't want to change. Now, I talked to Bill Thielman. Uh, I interviewed him for B.C. today this week, and he said that he personally will not be filling out the second part of the ballot. He says that that legitimizes um, systems that he doesn't feel are good for B.C., two of which are untested, and one of which, uh, MMP, he believes would be bad for the province. So it does sound like the no side are going to try and sort of delegitimize that second part of the ballot. Um, I think it'll be disappointing if that's the way it goes. I think that people should exercise their choice, even if they don't want to see a PR system, you know, maybe vote for the one, like Richard said, that you think is the most complicated, or take a more productive approach and vote for the one that you think is the least bad of the bunch. Um, but I do think that people have time to explore the issues, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the campaigns come up with. Yeah, and to acknowledge your point, Shannon, I think there is a genuine hunger from people to understand the complexities of the three systems out there. But my question is, where are they going to get the straight goods from? Uh, the Greens earlier last, or last weekend in their AGM here in Kamloops uh, got caught uh, trying to frame the no vote as a special interest choice. Andrew Wilkinson on record saying New Zealand's in chaos due to the PR, which is uh, hokey at best. Uh, Rob, these everyone's going to try and spin this thing or fear monger. So where do we get the straight goods? Yeah, I mean, I think I said on the show before, my fear is that we get through this process and we are all dumber for having yeah. through it because we're bounced between the two sides. You know, when you use Wilkinson's uh, example of New Zealand, um, you know, he's he's tried to portray it as chaos, but we had a story in the paper uh, talking to academics from there saying, well, actually, it, it's been fine, although... It is interesting to note that in the eight elections since they moved to PR, every single one has been a minority government mm. had to form a coalition or a confidence agreement. And so that is not chaos, but it is worth noting. Uh, and uh, I just think we're, we're going to be uh, – you look at what the parties are saying, and you come to a conclusion pretty quickly that you're not going to be able to go to them or good information in this uh, referendum that the liberals and the greens and the new democrats are all going to be out there spinning furiously giving you half facts giving you their lines that they've already set in stone uh, arguing that this is about uh, you know getting special interests out or getting the old guard out and voters are going to have to be very wary you know even when you go on twitter right now and you look at some of the people who are promoting pr and you watch as they're challenged on PR, 
on the left side of the spectrum, you end up reading some comments from folks who basically want PR because they don't think the NDP has won enough elections. <laughs> and you have to be very careful if you're going to get your information from those types of people. So I think, and the other thing that's going through my mind as I watch this debate is I'm not entirely sure that we're going to get very far down the path of explaining the three different systems. When we had one system and it was STV, we spent a lot of time explaining how STV was going to work in excruciating detail, and we had the benefit of information. And I, I think it's going to be hard to explain to people how MMP is going to work in the province without knowing whether it's a closed list or an open list, without knowing exactly how they're going to redistribute the ridings. It's, I, I, I kind of wonder if maybe we don't end up in that debate on exactly how the three systems are going to work, and we just end up debating whether we want change or not. And that would mm -hmm. certainly, I think, benefit um, the yes side for change. All right, we need to take a break here, and we'll talk a, a little marijuana on the other side here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Well, welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Shannon Waters, Rob Shaw, and Richard Zussman. Uh, guys, the Senate, uh, we're all waiting for legalization of marijuana, which was held up in the Senate past third reading uh, yesterday night, uh, to add to all the other great news stories yesterday. Uh, and we still are going to have to wait for a finite timeline on this thing, but we're getting a little higher of a focus on it. Uh, Shannon, while we wait for legalization to occur, I mean, this is a massive policy shift. Uh, do you think the province is going to be ready in any real way, should the trigger be pulled in, say, a month or month and a half, two months? I think we are going to have a bit of a scramble once all the details, uh, once we get all the details from the federal government. Um, our uh, public safety minister has basically said as much. Um, Mike Farnworth has talked about how, you know, BC has sort of done everything it can. We've passed legislation around what we're going to do once cannabis becomes legalized, um, but we still don't have a lot of information. One of the biggest um, issues being price point, um, especially when the focus is supposedly about shutting down the black market, um, but there's going to be likely an excise tax imposed by the federal government. There's a lot of, um, well, some people have attitudes that it's going to be a cash cow bringing money into government once they can tax legal cannabis. Farnworth has uh, kind of said that he doesn't believe that's going to be the case, at least not initially. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the government does, I think, with the Senate's, um, some of the amendments that the Senate has proposed to the bill, um, one of them being cancelling out or the option to cancel out personal cultivation, um, and whether that's something that the government the federal government thinks is fine. Um, I think for BC, though, it's going to be a really big shift here because we are kind of strange in our sort of attachment to cannabis already and the way that we already handle it as an issue. Um, a lot of people, I think, are hoping, a lot of people who are looking forward to legalization have been hoping that it's, it's kind of going to mean things stay the same and pot is very readily available and everybody has access, but with the government with its hand in things, I think we're going to see a pretty big shift, especially in places like Victoria and Vancouver, where you have had these dispensaries kind of operating in a gray area, and all of a sudden there is going to be both a federal and a provincial regulation regime in place. Uh, I was talking to the mayor of Kamloops this week and asking him if he'd heard from government officials on setting up a, a brick-and-mortar government shop, mixture of government-run and private, of course, when we see this regime roll into place. And he told me he has a hard time seeing anything solid being set up until well after August. Uh, Rob, is that essentially, I mean, we got a lot of stuff to tackle here, but to even get the stores in place, never mind the supply chain, to get those stores filled with the product, is that really the big challenge? 
it's a huge challenge. I mean, it's a massive system that they have to create, and everyone's kind of waiting. I mean, this this Senate uh, amendment, uh, there's like 40 amendments. They go back to the House of Commons, the bill, and the House of Commons has to decide whether to accept them or not or change them and then send it back to the Senate again. So we're bogged down once again in what's going on in Ottawa. And I know that the public safety ministers expressed frustration in that because it prevents British Columbia from actually beginning to put into place the system that they've envisioned. And I, I can't see them doing that very quickly. It's, it's incredibly, uh, you know, large, this distribution, this model that they've set. And it's, uh, I think it, I agree with Shannon. It's going to be a mess. There's going to be a, an incredible scramble, to just try to get in under the, the deadline when it comes from Ottawa, when they finally figure out when this is going to happen. Um, and uh, everybody, all the little small shops, all of the, the ones that already exist, the municipalities, everyone's going to be, um, you know, lighting their hair on fire as the province tries to, to figure this out. But it, the blame should lie on the feds. They've, they've just not produced um, certainty, I think, for the provinces in the timeline that the provinces wanted. And I think there's also going to be a wake-up call for people who sort of currently perceive themselves as sort of this is their hobby horse uh, for when legalization occurs and sort of the big corporations and other companies and business interests move in. Uh, Richard, what are we going to, like, one of the other big challenges is once we go over, overnight to legalization or whatever that time period or phasing process is, uh, how do you deal with those illegal dispensaries and illegal operations that some will survive but some certainly won't, and there's going to be some very upset people in the mix there? Yeah, I've talked to Public Safety Minister Mike Thornwood about this in the past, and they have vowed a part of the legislation that was passed in B.C. gives them uh, much stronger rules around shutting down uh, illegal operations, and if these dispensaries are deemed illegal during uh, the process of selling legal uh, recreational marijuana, then they will shut them down. They'll find them first, and then they'll shut them down. I think people need to come to the reality that when recreational marijuana is available in BC, there won't be thousands of stores from day one. I think it will be a slow process. I think some of these government shops may be available at the beginning in core centers like Vancouver and Victoria and slowly start spreading out across the province. Uh, there will be tackling what happens with the physical dispensaries. There's a lot of play here. The health minister, uh, the federal health minister yesterday also said that it would be basically two to three months to allow the provinces to be ready from the day Ottawa passes legislation. So their session is wrapping up here pretty soon in Ottawa. Uh, if the legislation isn't passed this session, then we could see some pretty massive delays unless they have an emergency session in Ottawa. And so even from two to three months from next week, uh, we're looking now at the middle of August to the middle of September till we even start seeing this in many provinces. So I think people need to get out of their head this July 1st date that was originally reported and that recreational marijuana won't be available till much later in the summer, if not into the fall. Not that that'll cut into anyone's habit because it's pretty widely available now. <laughs> uh, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. We'll pick up our conversation with Richard Sussman, Rob Shaw, and Shannon Waters and Inside Politics right here on Radio NL after that. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. For Camlin's Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Oh, 
fire both promos just to really emphasize the point there. Uh, good morning, uh, Shane Woodford here on Inside Politics. A uh, real pleasure to be talking to Richard Zussman, Rob Shaw, and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, let's sort of talk about dual issues all wrapped under one thing. Uh, David Eby uh, caught my eye that he was the subject of a, a really interesting McLean's article this week uh, tied into uh, his rising star within the party. Is constantly his name coming up as a future leader. He, of course, is the face of many different important portfolios, one of the busiest ministers in, in cabinet. Uh, and he's also, with that fame and with all of those portfolios, comes a fair amount of flack and, and criticism because his face is attached to uh, a number of things that people are not very happy about. A lot of news stories about the housing forum that kind of went sideways uh, down in Vancouver. So maybe we'll talk to you, Rob, first on this. A, is EB in trouble? And, and B, do you think that there is some kind of tax revolt brewing that's going to bite him in the butt? Yeah, well, I mean, he's in trouble now, but uh, it could be a long time till the next election, depending on how things go. And in fact, if we do end up with PR um, and his seat is uh, salted earth and he can't win it back, then uh, one of the, the options in PR is just to stick him on the party list and he could just win as a regional party member as well. So he's not, depending on how things go, he's not completely, um, you know, uh, gone uh, from the legislature. But he is in uh, you know, one of the wealthiest ridings. He's having to uh, explain to people why the NDP housing taxes to some look like class warfare. They look like, as some people have put it, the jealousy tax or the envy tax, the inheritance tax, the death tax, you know, the idea of, of hitting people with uh, the surcharge on $3 million homes uh, is directly uh, affecting the constituents in his riding. So he's taking the brunt of that. And <clears throat> it's all well and good to have the finance minister pop up and say that uh, wealthy British Columbians should pay a little bit more to help the rest of us. But when your riding is full of wealthy British Columbians, mm -hmm. uh, you're in for a bit of a rough ride. So <clears throat> I would say he's in trouble, but he's got time to right the ship. And if he can't, he's uh, potentially got an exit escape hatch uh, using PR maybe in the next election. Although, would it be in effect in the next election? We don't know. It could be a first-past-the-post election coming up, depending on when the writs dropped, I assume. But... Uh, Richard, uh, to you, I mean, uh, there are some polls out there saying, and I do get the sense that, that, that some people are happy that the NDP are doing something on the housing front uh, with the school tax, the speculation tax, uh, although it also has its fair share of critics. So uh, while the with all the phrase, you know, taxpayers revolt kind of gets thrown around there, do you feel that maybe it's just the wealthy ones are upset or, or do you think most people are on side with this? No, I don't think most people are upset. I think you're right, Shane, that the polls are indicating that there are a lot of people out there who are happy with the measures the NDP have put in place. Sure, some of them are confusing. I think people wish there was more information around uh, the speculation tax and that it's not a true tax on speculators. Uh, and I think there was a lot of frustration around and confusion around uh, second homes, summer homes, cottages on remote islands. All this stuff confused people and I think gave them uh, a bad taste in their mouth around the tax. I think the employer's health tax is also somewhat confusing to people, especially if you operate a non-for-profit uh, or a charity. I think people generally feel it's unfair uh, if they're going to get a heavy tax burden uh, because of this shift away from the MSP towards this payroll tax. So I think all of that is fair, but I don't think overall this is going to have a tremendous impact on the NDP. Rob mentioned it. We're a long way away from election. We're a long ways away from any sort of leadership contest that David Eby could be tested 
Sting as a future leader for the NDP. It's also important to remember he won his seat by nearly 6,000 votes. Uh, that's a lot of votes. And even if there are 2,000 angry NDP voters in Point Grey and they all vow to vote Liberal, uh, he still wins that election by 2,000 votes. So the, a lot has to shift. He still is a tremendously talented politician. He has a lot of other files, too, that he'll be stick-handling. Mm-hmm. ICBC, one of them, which arguably has a more profound impact on everybody's lives in the province. So uh, there's a lot here that EB is handling, and, and his reputation is based on more than just that school tax issue in his writing. Uh, to flip the issue on the housing taxes uh, issue, I know that Andrew Wilkinson is, and his Liberals are looking to, to make some hay on that issue. Uh, Shannon, do you feel that they have a foundation to kind of do that? It does fit the lexicon that they want to sell of the NDP raising your taxes, et cetera, et cetera. I think it does play well for them to a certain degree. And I mean, for Andrew Wilkinson's home riding, it's another one that has a lot of wealthy homeowners in it, many of whom are probably also upset as much as David Eby's constituents have been about this uh, tax. But, you know, I agree with Robin Richard. I think it's a relatively small group of people who are really upset Um with this tax, the the protests seem to not have really made it out of West Vancouver. Obviously, it's a very vocal group of people, and they're willing to spend a lot of time, um, you know, protesting this tax and protesting any town hall that David E.B. holds to speak to his constituents about it. But I don't know that it has a lot of traction outside of, say, the Lower Mainland and possibly onto the island. Um, I haven't seen... A a lot uh, speaking about, say, homeowners in Kelowna being upset about the tax. You know, there will be, there are higher end homes there, but, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to kind of have taken off. And the Liberals haven't, you know, Andrew Wilkinson sent out that letter encouraging people to show up at David Eby's town hall, whether they had a ticket to the event or not. This is the one that was rescheduled and Evie held uh, a rescheduled meeting. I believe Mm -hmm. it was on the 4th of June, but they haven't been pursuing it in the way they've been pursuing, you know, the impact that the employer health tax is going to have on small businesses, nonprofits, school boards. They haven't pursued it um, the way they have the speculation tax and the impact that it's going to have, they say, on British Columbians just trying to hold on to the family cabin. So to me, it seems like even they know that there's a limited appeal in this issue. Uh, we only got a few minutes left, but just want to do a quick round the horn on this. Uh, it caught my ear in a conversation with Glenn Hansman uh, about a week ago that he talked about, okay, we want to get into bargaining no later than December 1st, ideally before that around Halloween. Goal is to get a new contract for teachers uh, before the this one expires in June. Uh, the government, of course, facing a broad bargaining challenge with a number of public sector unions. Uh, the two things that caught my ear with the Hansman conversation besides the timeline were uh, he says he want to make up some serious ground on wages, and then he tied in the affordability issue as a separate issue within contract negotiations. Uh, start with you, Richard. Is, is that going to be an added challenge uh, when the government deals with you know a lot of unions, the BCTF included, who backed them and are now looking for uh, a little sort of gentler negotiation? Yeah, I think it's going to be huge, Shane. I think you really hit it there uh, because the unions have been waiting a long time for the NDP to get back in power, and the NDP have long advocated for the unions and uh, increase in wages, and now that the negotiation table 
uh, about to be, not just with the BCTF, but with a number of other major unions. I asked Education Minister Rob Fleming about exactly this last week when Hansman made these comments. And what he said is that there needs to be some good faith here. I think the NDP believes that they're making uh, positive moves for teachers and for the education system, uh, and they need to be treated as such when they get to the negotiation table. But it's going to be fascinating because teachers feel like they're owed a lot, not just in terms of wages, but in terms of supports in the classroom. So it's going to be a really fascinating negotiation. Yeah, Rob, to you. I mean, they're really complaining about having to deal with net zero the last couple of rounds, and they're expecting something this time. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that for every 1% increase you give uh, the public sector in, in a wage increase, um, it costs $300 million to the province. So there's some math at play here where there's something somewhere around two and a half billion dollars in the next two years that the finance minister set aside for, um, you know, unfunded priorities, including contract negotiations. And if you and I credit Von Palmer, my colleague, for doing the math on this, if you give a hypothetical contract to the public sector of a two percent wage increase next year and two percent uh, after that, that's just two years. Uh, you eat up seventy percent of all of the unallocated funding in the budget for the next two years, and that's not where the new democrats want to be when we're dealing with tax tweaks when we're dealing with exempting charities and nonprofits from the employer health tax i mean that's money that the government has to set aside for emergency uh, political priorities so the bctf is is clearly looking for something but they are going to run into the practical reality of a government that doesn't have a lot of money to accommodate uh, a big wage increase and i think the teachers are going to be disappointed when they hear that at the bargaining table. Yeah, no kidding. Last word to you, Shannon. Yeah, it does kind of seem like it's going to be definitely an interesting negotiation with some high expectations. But as Rob pointed out, the government doesn't have sort of a, a lot of money or a lot of latitude to really just say, yep, okay, let's, let's you know, raise wages, let's deal with the affordability issue. I did think it was interesting that Hansman is bringing that into the conversation, the fact that affordability here in BC is a problem when it comes to recruiting and retaining teachers. The, the NDP has said very clearly that they are committed to dealing with the affordability issue, and I think this is going to put a little bit more pressure on them to, to really do something. They are they have taken some action. You know, they haven't even been in power for a year, but I think a lot of people, apparently the BCTF included, are getting a bit impatient in terms of seeing some results. Excellent. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Thanks, Shane. There we go. Richard Zussman, Rob Shaw, and Shannon Waters. Uh, we'll, of course, talk to them in future shows as often as we can. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. And on the other side, we'll talk to Kamloops, uh, former Kamloops North MLA and Cabinet Minister Terry Lake about uh, a couple of different topics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by former Kamloops North MLA and uh, BC Liberal Cabinet Minister Terry Lake. Terry, how are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm great. Well, uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Doug Ford victory here in Ontario. Yeah, uh, that was a bit of a shocker. We uh, we obviously didn't know how that was going to play out. Uh, it did seem to belie the polls in some ways with the NDP underperforming and the PCs overperforming. But at the end of the day, as uh, as, as sort of a an Ontario resident, half resident now, uh, what's your sort of reaction as a sort of a politician and being in the province? Uh, 
Well, it's um, it's a bit of a shock. I mean, to be honest, but not 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 a surprise in that everyone knew the the Liberals, the Kathleen Wynne Liberals, were were going to be gone, and you know they they didn't retain party status down to seven seats from something like seventy before. Uh, but uh, still, I think people, even though there was a, you know, we want a change kind of a feel that uh, swept this election, I think people are still coming to grips with the fact that Doug Ford is now the uh, the premier of Canada's largest province. And everyone is kind of speculating on the kind of chaos that may ensue from that. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so you have uh, obviously some experience in government under both uh, Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark as premiers here in BC. So you have some knowledge of the interprovincial relationships. Uh, any idea uh, how this Doug Ford situation might impact or play out in those relationships that could impact this province or no? Well, there'll be some provinces that probably uh, you know will be well aligned. Uh, Saskatchewan comes to mind, and who knows what happens in Alberta a year from now if Jason Kenney is elected premier. Uh, certainly, they would be aligned in terms of opposing a carbon pricing scheme. And in fact, Doug Ford has uh, said he'll get rid of the cap and trade that's already here in Ontario and and won't have a carbon price. So that's going to set you know the federal government's plan back significantly. So you know it could ca- cause all kinds of trouble for federal provincial relationships. Um, but uh, there so- certainly will be some allies particularly in western provinces, with Mr. Ford's approach to uh, to carbon pricing. Yeah, do, do you think that uh, Mr. Horgan and Mr. Ford will get along very well? I know there's been a lack of congratulatory tweeting from, from our premier. Yeah, I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, they're very different in their political philosophies. Um, you know, uh, John Horgan is quite pragmatic, and but certainly, you know, believes in investing in social services and and not afraid to, to spend taxpayers' dollars on those services, whereas Mr. Ford has said, you know, his main mantra is we've got to cut taxes. Uh, but he's been promising lots of additional uh, sort of programs without saying how he'll pay for them and talking about, you know, bringing back a dollar a beer as the minimum price of beer, which is like the about the worst public health policy you could ever implement. But that's the kind of bumper sticker mentality and populism that... Uh, has swept him to victory, that combined with it's time for a change message. Yeah, and let's talk, I mean, you're again, you're no stranger to running a campaign and, and making promises to the electorate and then being in government and having to deliver. Uh, he made a lot of headlines for not putting out a, a finite economic plan and making tons of promises. I know in his speech last night, he's going to lower uh, the price of gas, lower taxes, uh, the list goes on and on, and yet Ontario does have some dubious finances. Uh, do you think delivering the government he promises is going to be a challenge? Oh, it's going to be impossible, uh, more than a challenge. I mean, you can't take 10 cents off, uh, you know, gas tax uh, and not have a big hole in your budget. Uh, you, you know, all of the things that he's promised uh, to bring hydro rates down, all of that takes money. And, you know, the whole theory that if you just lower taxes on business, that the economy will do so well that it'll all uh, even out in the end. Uh, you know, that might work if the economy has been challenged or held back. But, I mean, the economy in, in Ontario has been uh, climbing and climbing and climbing and outperforming itself year over year. So, you know, I don't think there's really been any impediment to business here that is going to result in a whole bunch of windfall revenues for the province uh, if he cuts taxes. So uh, I think he's going to find himself in an impossible situation. Uh, but, you know, it takes time and there'll be a, a period, uh, a golden period for him where he'll enjoy his victory. 
Uh, but then reality will, will come crashing down with the first budget. Uh, last question on this topic before I switch it up to marijuana, but uh, I know from our chat yesterday, you talked about politics needing good people. Uh, there does seem to be a, a certain sector where we're getting um, people that <laughs> aren't so good. You know, your Donald Trump's to maybe to some extent, Doug Ford's. Uh, you know, conservatives are celebrating a victory, but do we celebrate victories when people like this get elected, Terry? I mean, they're going to spend some time now instantly going on the defense, not only on the policy side, but probably on the personality side as well. Well, you know, politics is a pendulum that swings back and forth, and, and it probably that swinging back and forth probably helps keep us uh, somewhat uh, middle of the road. And, and while it can be for those of us that like to think we you know support progressive policies, Having someone like uh, Doug Ford uh, as a, a leader of our uh, most, uh, you know, largest province, it uh, can be dismaying. But at the same time, it it uh, forces everyone to rethink uh, the, their their political platforms and reminds us that not everyone thinks the same way we do. And I think that's important. You know, we all get in our bubbles and we forget that there are lots and lots of people in this country that support that message that uh, Doug Ford was bringing to, in, in the States, the message that Donald Trump has been bringing about immigration and some of the stressors of the middle class or the working class. So it's important not to ignore those things, uh, but at the same time, we don't want that pendulum to swing too far. And um, so I think the Liberals here in Ontario have a real challenge ahead of themselves rebuilding that party. And the NDP, uh, while they did better than they have for a long time, still weren't able to break through in the way they thought. Does that speak to the need for all politicians, Terry, to sort of reconnect with, with just people instead of uh, what seems to be sort of a disconnect, which is fueling some of this stuff? Well, I think you get governments like the Liberal government in Ontario that, you know, tries to do too much social engineering. They think they know what's good for everybody and, and, and put policies in place that cost taxpayers uh, a lot of money. And uh, it starts to rub a certain section of the population the wrong way, like they're being told how to live their lives and and the government can do everything uh, better than the private sector. So, you know, I think it's, uh, it, again, just brings us back into the middle, that the, the best way to govern in this country is from the middle, uh, that we have a, a market economy with a social safety net, and getting that balance right, uh, it can be tricky sometimes. All right. Uh, you have, uh, of course, since left public life and now working with the Hydropothecary Corporation in the uh, legalized or pending to be legalized uh, cannabis industry. Uh, the Senate, which was one of the big hurdles, uh, passed the marijuana bill in third reading, which gives us a little bit more of a focus on the pending timeline and, and the, uh, uh, this, the imminent arrival on this legalization regime. Uh, four dozen amendments, though, inside the bill. Uh, as you watch this thing process, Terry, is there good news, bad news in this thing or no? Well, you know, I don't think the Senate has ever felt more relevant because they put a lot of work into this and there was a lot of focus on this bill. So, you know, this new independent Senate, it was an opportunity for them to demonstrate that they actually were doing some real work. And, and many senators did some excellent work, some not so much. And uh, We saw some very simplistic ideas uh, put forward. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's good to get it through the Senate. Now it will go to the House of Commons. They'll decide whether or not to accept all those amendments. I suspect they won't accept them all. They'll accept the technical ones. And they may accept one of the major ones, which was around giving the provinces the right to say no to uh, to growing at home. But I don't think they'll accept many of the other amendments. So then uh, it'll have to go back to the Senate after the House of Commons for a quick uh, vote. And then hopefully within a week or so, this thing will be wrapped up and, and we can get to the next stage of legalization. 
Do you think that we're ready for legalization, Terry, from a from a practicality point of view of having uh, bricks and mortar shops and and supply chains and and all of that stuff now that we're sort of on the doorstep? I think so. You know, in September when uh, retail stores start to open, and of course they're not all going to open at once. It'll be more of a process than an event. And uh, but you know, everyone's working really hard. Uh, it's amazing what work you can get done when you know there's a looming deadline and. Governments and, and private sector are, are similar that way. So uh, while it still will be a challenge and there will be some bumps in the road, I don't think that's a reason to slow this down. I think it's better just to, uh, to get started and then deal with issues uh, as they are identified because public policy never gets done properly or exactly the way you want it the first time. You, you have to you know tune it as you go, and I'm sure that'll happen with this. And from sort of an inside the industry perspective, Terry, what's the biggest challenge, both from sort of a, what we're seeing in the legislative side and in the side of, of the practicality of, of this regime that that's, that's, uh, will soon arrive? Well, I think you mentioned, you know, the supply chain and, and making sure that all those components are there. Uh, and we have to line up, of course, with the regulations around packaging, around labeling. And, and until all those are finalized, we, we kind of have some idea what we're doing. Uh, but we don't have, uh, uh, you know, the final uh, word on all these regulations. So if things are different than industry is expecting at the end of the day, then that will cause some problems in getting a product ready. Uh, but generally speaking, I think we're pretty good. There may be a tight supply at the beginning uh, because a lot of the producers are in the growth stage in terms of building new facilities and they're not all ready yet. Uh, but, you know, uh, again, all the stores won't be open at once. And so uh, the retail outlets and the supply behind it probably will be well aligned. All right. Um, the one issue I do want to talk to you about is uh, this issue of uh, branded clothing, which is a bit of a, a headline grabber a week or so ago. But uh, as the again, as we approach this medical marijuana regime, should companies like yourself be able to not just market marijuana product, but hats, T-shirts and all that kind of jazz? Well, you know, the the government is uh, making it very difficult to differentiate one brand from another just with the, the labeling and packaging requirements and um, and, and the general uh, requirements around promotion. If this amendment uh, is put forward that doesn't allow you to have your logo or your name on anything other than your cannabis product, it really will hamper a uh, company's ability to uh, to market themselves. And, you know, when you think about the public health implications, I mean, you can see liquor advertising, liquor promotion everywhere. And so to treat a product that is less harmful than alcohol in such a restrictive way, um, number one, I don't think is fair, but number two, will will not allow us to compete with the black market that doesn't have to you know, have any regulations on the way they market and the way they promote themselves. And uh, today you can see that easily on the Internet. Uh, you can see it in downtowns uh, throughout uh, Canada. And so if we want to beat the black market, we've got to be able to compete, and that means being able to promote ourselves to some degree. All right, perfect. Uh, when are you going to be back here at home in Kamloops? Uh, hopefully uh, towards the end of the month. Uh, I've got to go see my old dog before <laughs> that final time comes. Poor old pal's uh, getting up there, so I'm looking forward to seeing him a little bit later. All right, sounds good. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Shane. That was former B.C. Liberals Cabinet Minister Terry Lake, now working with the Hydropothecary Corporation in the legal marijuana industry out of Ottawa. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk Trans Mountain Pipeline and his meeting with the Prime Minister with Chief First Nation Chief Ernie Cray.
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined by the Cheam First Nation Chief, Ernie Cray, who had a meeting with the Prime Minister earlier this week over his support of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Ernie, welcome. Obviously, a lot of media attention uh, on the meeting in Chilliwack uh, yesterday uh, with the Prime Minister uh, concerning the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, coming out of that meeting saying uh, in interviews that uh, he's going to get the pipeline built uh, no matter the political cost, saying if he loses seats in, in BC because of it, then uh, essentially so be it. Uh, your sense of, of uh, what the Prime Minister said and what do you think is going to happen going forward based on that conversation? An hour and 30 minutes with the Prime Minister yesterday. And um, we wanted to meet with him because um, a game changer has taken place. Uh, Kinder Morgan is exiting stage right, so to speak, I think in late August, September. And the government, as everyone knows, has uh, stepped forward and will be the owner of what is uh, referred to as the uh, Kinder Morgan TMX or Trans Mountain. So we just wanted to know uh, how things would take shape between ourselves as the committee and his government in, in relation to our role. As an as advisor and monitor of the Kinder Morgan pipeline as it's being built, so that's what we focused on uh, the morning that we met with the Prime Minister yesterday. Um, as people know, uh, this committee is made up of uh, First Nations that have agreements with Kinder Morgan. We were told that they would be honored. So, in other words, the government would take responsibility for the agreements. Kinder Morgan had negotiated with us some 43 First Nations. We also have um, people on the committee that are from First Nations that uh, are opposed to the pipeline. But um, that works for us because the thing we have in common is once this pipeline, construction of it begins, whether you were opposed to it (laughs) or for it in the first instance, now the focus shifts to actually monitoring it working with the uh, regulators to make sure that construction is second to none as it goes along to its completion. Ernie, just uh, you've obviously been an interested observer and and even a participant in the in this Trans Mountain debate, uh, and certainly First Nations issues uh, have been preeminent uh, in some aspects, uh, including some of the First Nations that have opposed, and of course some are for. Uh, from your perspective, how is that debate playing out within the First Nations community, as far as you're, you're concerned? Well, some some folks have suggested that the presence of uh, Kinder Morgan has created divisions in the community. I say that the divisions that are there always existed, but this is another issue introduced into the general mix of issues in our community um, that uh, accentuate differences. But the presence of the pipeline has not uh, created divisions. So we're like other communities. In Canada, there are people in this instance for the pipeline. In other instances, they're opposed to it. But um, what I'm reassured about and what I'm interested in seeing happen is that this pipeline is built because it means a tremendous uh, – it will be a tremendous boon. It's already started to be a boon. Uh, for my community and at least 42 other First Nations community along the Kinder Morgan 
pipeline route in the way of job training, jobs. It brings money to our communities. We have formed joint ventures with other British Columbians and Canadians who own significant companies and corporations in of national scope. We formed uh, joint ventures with these companies so that we could actively and, uh, and broadly participate in the construction of the pipeline. This means more income for our communities, and we consume more, assume more and more responsibility for building community in- infrastructure and doing things on our on behalf of our community members that we might not otherwise be able to do. Uh, we were chatting earlier this week up here with Whispering Pines uh, Indian Man Chief Mike Laborde, who is yeah. uh, mentioning that some 30 First Nations groups, uh, his included, are, are, are talking to financial agencies, banks, etc., uh, to table an offer to buy uh, some portion of the pipeline, maybe 20% or something. Uh, I'm not sure if you're involved in that or not, but your, your thoughts on that? Well, I do uh, speak with uh, Michael Chief Laborde regularly. We communicate, of course, through social media, uh, telephone. We keep each other informed. Um, like his community, we're interested in the notion, the idea of taking out a direct stake in the pipeline. But uh, before we would do that, even though we are keenly interested, is we need to learn more about the details and how how that would proceed and where we would raise the capital to do that so uh we're we're interested but we need more information and we ought, we need an opportunity uh to pursue discussions with the government of canada about canada about that because they're the new owner yeah totally uh you've obviously met with the prime minister uh any interest or have you uh, sat down or, or do you want to sit down with premier john organ who of course is uh, something on the other side of the fence on this issue oh yeah i haven't had the opportunity to speak directly to the premier uh it's because uh, where i'm concerned um in my world a much smaller world you might say than the as is the Prime Minister or the Premier, of course. I just haven't had the opportunity uh, to meet with him. I hope that I can at some point in the near future uh, to talk about um, issues I think related to this pipeline, uh, issues that uh, we we do need to talk about, and uh, concerns we may in fact share. But I just haven't had the opportunity yet. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, I was talking to an energy reporter out of Alberta who was uh, saying that he expects uh, sort of standing rock-style protests uh, once construction gets going. Uh, you think that's a stretch, or, or what's your what's your stance on that? Yeah, I think it's a stretch. Um, I think the uh, focal point or the area that, uh, that we'll see most of the demonstrations are at the Westridge Terminal, uh, where they're already taking place. This, these protests, protests that I've seen, uh, seem to be, uh, and the protesters, sorry, seem to be mainly made up of urbane, urban Vancouverites, and some folks from the burbs, as the expression goes. But, you know, once you get out to Chilliwack and you make your way up to Coquihalla through Merritt, where there's a lot of support for the pipeline, um, all the way through Kamloops, the, the Kamloops... Uh, First Nation has an agreement, and then you ascend the Thompson River, North Thompson, all the way to Alberta. That's a natural resource 
extraction country, uh, those communities rely on opportunities like this. I think the, the uh, concentration of the demonstrations will be in, in Vancouver, not in resource-based communities through much of the rest of the province, straight to Alberta. Uh, the Prime Minister obviously campaigning and winning a government uh, based on uh, a lot of promises of the First Nations communities, including respecting UNDRIP. The Premier of the province has, has made a big uh, deal about respecting UNDRIP and First Nations rights. Uh, uh, Trans Mountain may be part of this issue, but in your mind, Ernie, are First Nations communities now on a more solid footing in being able to sort of uh, claim an ownership stake and have a say in tax and water and land and, and all the things? That, that you guys have been fighting for? It, you know, it, it's been happening for, for decades, actually. Many First Nations have been uh, taxing major companies like Enbridge and um, TMX because their respective pipes go right through our reserve communities. And so they've already been, they've already had a long-term relationship with both companies, but today, of course, we're speaking about um, Kinder Morgan TMX, and we've had a long, long standing with that company as well. And so it's not a new relationship, but it's a relationship that's changed because in this instance, we're looking at uh, a new pipe, not just the existing pipe, but a new pipe that will run parallel to uh, the one that's already in the ground. And um, it's, it's a relationship uh, where the pipeline is concerned, um, where the legal realities, and the, thank you for that question, the legal realities have changed over the past couple of decades. So uh, First Nations' uh, interest in the land and, and water and natural resources in their territories uh, as a result of many court decisions strengthen the hand of First Nations uh, interests and claims in their respective traditional territories. And that's exactly where this pipe is, is going to be built through, is traditional First Nations territories and their, their reserves proper. Yeah. Uh, this story far from over, Ernie. Thanks for your time. You've been generous and uh, hope to chat with you again as this whole uh, story unfolds. Well, you're most welcome. That was Team First Nation Chief Ernie Cray. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics and continue with a bit of a First Nations theme. On the other side, we'll talk to Whispering Pines Indian Band Chief Mike Laborde, again, pro Trans Mountain Pipeline. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the line by the Chief of the Whispering Pines Indian Band, Mike Laborde. Mike, how are you, man? I'm good. Yeah, yeah. How are you, Shane? Yeah, I am well. Hey, uh, this Trans Mountain issue has been a bit of a firestorm for a little while now. Uh, we all know the federal government has uh, put about $4.5 billion down to buy this thing. Uh, interesting development uh, per our story in NL yesterday. Uh, yourself and it looks like a, a bunch of other First Nation groups are, are looking at kind of buying in a, a sort of a stake in this project. Uh, just wanted to kind of expand on that. Uh, any idea so far what percentage, what kind of money, what kind of variables here you're looking at here or no? Well, we're we're looking at a whole bunch of uh, variables. We have some financial folks working on how to buy half, how to buy 25%, how to buy 20, 10, 15, those kinds of things. And so how that will work out is what is the appetite that the federal government has to 
include First Nations participation and to what extent. And so there's uh, different uh, financial models for different amounts. Okay, and would that include uh, among the 30 First Nations groups, Mike? Is that all sort of mainly in the interior or, or no? No, no, it, it's, it's um, uh, groups along the pipeline route, uh, both on the pipeline route and the traditional territory. Um, and there's some expressed an interest from the island as well, as well as the 10 bands from Alberta. Oh, interesting. So it's a real it's a real gathering of different groups from all over the place. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like herding cats right now, but uh, we're finally, you know, through uh, telephone calls uh, and, and talking to each other, getting um, a line on who's, who's serious and who really wants to look at uh, having um, an equity stake in this pipe. And it's for two reasons, right? I mean, there's, there's folks that uh, they want the economic benefits uh, that come with that morning uh, equity. They also want to participate in the construction, which would go a long way in giving them comfort that the pipeline's safe. But mostly, most of these guys, they want the economic participation as well as the environmental oversight. So once, if you're owning something, then you get to say on how it's run and how it's maintained and all that kind of thing. And you take that responsibility and that accountability for the safe operation. Yeah, no, absolutely. It makes total sense. Just out of curiosity, I mean, there are groups, uh, there's First Nation groups that oppose this thing, uh, the Coldwater, the Squamish, the Slaywatooth spring to mind. I'm sure there's a handful of others. Uh, as you kind of watch this debate play out in the media, uh, centered on sort of the First Nations who are for and against, uh, what do you sort of, I mean, what, within the First Nations communities, how does that sort of play out? Well, that'll be uh, an interesting conversation. We we do expect that, uh, you know, Musqueam has... Uh, since come out and said uh, um, they, they will work with Peter Morgan and uh, haven't expressed an interest in uh, working with the pipeline and that kind of thing. We do expect to have meetings uh, with the Tilwatoos and Squamish um, who are opposed and to outline how, how we can make this safe and how this can work for all nations along the pipe and in Burrard and along the seaways. I mean, to single out double-hulled anchors is... is um, silly, for lack of a better term, because you go to Vancouver, you see there's a Chevron gas station in the middle of the bay, and you have all these single-hulled cruise ships with bunker fuel coming in and out, and there's nobody raising concerns of those. Um, and so those are the kinds of things, those are real conversations that we need to have around safety. You know, we all want clean water, we all want a clean ocean, we all want that clean environment. So this is our chance to incorporate our values into those um those those laws right because right now it's not we're an afterthought right now you know and you know and viral groups well what about the indians what about the indians and then as soon as um you know all of these first nations come along and say well no we kind of support it they abandoned us and they say well what about the orcas what about the orcas right <laughs> so you know as soon as the orcas support the pipeline they'll abandon the orcas too and so it just goes, you know, we're tired of being used in our own country for purposes to keep us poor. Right? And yeah. we want to participate in the economy. We want those economic benefits, those jobs, uh, the equity. And if we can't have that, then we want the fiscal benefits. We want the power to tax the pipes. We want the power to tax the forest companies. We want the power to tax the mines and all those things. And then also to incorporate, more importantly, to incorporate our environmental oversight. Yeah, it's, it, 
it's interesting you brought up that point because the, there are uh, environmental groups and those opposed who are very quick to play the First Nations card. And not to say, again, there are some First Nations groups obviously opposed to this thing. Uh, but I imagine, uh, you know, I'm obviously not First Nations, but I imagine within the First Nations community, there must be some frustrations about sort of the, the, the dialogue to some degree that's playing out within the media and elsewhere. Yeah, it's a very limited dialogue. It's one extreme to the next, right? Like I, I've said this, I've done some presentations in May about um, the equity part of the pipeline and the fiscal, the tax part of the pipeline. I said, I don't care if you're piping teddy bears, apple juice, or dilbit. I want the authority to make sure that it's a safe pipeline and I want the authority to tax it. Because that's, uh, there's no such thing as a good pipe or a bad pipe. There's only bad operators and good operators. And so that's what I'm trying to get across to these guys. Um, and most of them understand. They go, yeah, you know, it's, it, you know, there's good drivers and bad drivers. And so what we want to do is be responsible, be accountable, and make sure that we're good operators if we're going to have a, a, an ownership stake in this pipe. And then if, if that uh, doesn't, doesn't appetite for everybody, then... I would have them to have the fiscal responsibility, the tax responsibility, the tax authority, so that they can look over the pipe and say, okay, we have to incorporate our environmental um, concerns as part of consultation and accommodation. And that Kinder Morgan has done that. So what they're going to do is they're going to ask Canada uh, through agreement to honor our agreement. Uh, the other big card that gets played a lot uh, where it refers to Indigenous peoples is the United Nations uh, Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, UNDRIP. Uh, and that's been played a lot by both the NDP provincial government here as well as the Trudeau federal government when they were elected to power. Uh, the one's bought the pipeline, the other opposes it. Uh, when it comes to kind of, you know, uh, paying attention and respecting UNDRIP, Mike, how, do, how does that play out? Well, that's just uh, that. Um, uh Respecting UNDRIP and it being law are two different two different things. Uh, it, it is not law today. For Jody wilson Rebo it's very, very clear when she said that UNDRIP does not fit in the Canadian Constitution, so we're going to have to find another way. And so that's where we are. Um, if there was UNDRIP, that would be great. I would have fiscal authority. I would have tax jurisdiction over the pipe, over the trees, over the water, over the mines. But that's not the reality. The reality is we're still in consultation and accommodation, and that's what we have to do. We have to work with uh, the feds. We have to work with Canadians and corporations to make sure the environment's safe and that we get to participate in the economic and the fiscal activities that go on around us. Uh, the pipeline itself, uh, obviously, is yet to sort of the, the major construction is yet to start. There is some, uh, I was talking on the show yesterday with a, a guy who covers energy things out of Alberta who was sort of saying that we're looking at sort of a standing rock style protest from, from those who oppose the pipeline here in British Columbia. Do, do you think it's going to get that bad or no? Well, I think um, it'll probably come to a head, but I think cooler heads will prevail when people realize that. Um, this pipeline has been safely operated for 50 years or more. And so once people start to understand that and realize that and that we're just getting our product to Tidewater, it'll, it'll be fine. Whether or not there's people, you know, we have Elizabeth May and Kennedy Stewart and all of that showboating, making uh, political statements and this kind of stuff. And yet, they, you know, I'm pretty sure they probably own two homes and have gasoline-powered cars. And so it, 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 
it's um I always said this and, and I don't know if I should say it publicly, but it seems to me to be a protest of convenience. Let's let's go let's get in our SUVs, let's drive to Starbucks, we'll get some some lattes and some ice lemonade and then we'll go to Burnaby Mountain, we'll protest a while, then we'll go hit some movies, get the take out and go home. Nobody's over protesting Mount Polly. Mount Polly dumped over two hundred thousand logging truck loads of arsenic and heavy metals into the water. I don't see anybody up there protecting the environment. We have bad sellers. She was a, a you know, she's the only one to continue suing the government and Mount Polly over that spill. And so uh, I take the the uh, I appreciate the voice that the protesters are bringing. But it makes us who support this kind of development in our nation look and look and look at our project to make sure it is absolutely safe for our environment and more importantly for our children and for our grandchildren. Yeah, absolutely. Good point there, by the way. Uh, last question, Mike, uh, back to the this sort of buy-in. Uh, I know you're sort of hammering out a lot of wrinkles at the moment. Any idea timeline-wise when you guys would have sort of a firm idea of, okay, we've got this money to play with, we want to buy this percentage of stake, and then uh, when you might actually be able to table an offer? The, what I want and what will be uh, the reality is probably two different things. I would like to have something hammered out by the end of July, but I'm not entirely confident that that's going to happen. This is, you know, we're moving quickly into June. Uh, Parliament's going to break soon, so it, it, um, you know, I would like to have it, some kind of deal, one way or the other, by the end of July. Uh, the sooner the better, so that provides comfort to the new owners that are coming or provides comfort to the feds or the Canadian people, those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, yeah, in all reality, hitting that deadline is, is, uh, is up to the feds as much as it's up to the First Nations. Good stuff. Mike, this was an awesome conversation. Thanks, man. No problem, Shane. Have a good day. And that's this week's Inside Politics. My thanks to my guest today. We'll see you on Radio NL again next Friday. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now.